This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, people. This is the Extra Spicy Podcast. I'm Justin Phillips. And I'm Soleil Ho. On this episode, we speak with writer and journalist Liana Agajanian. Culture is not a static thing. It's very fluid. It changes all the time. And so it's not fair to kind of freeze it in one way and say, this is the only way that this can be done. She's a seasoned journalist, and she's covered so many amazing stories that nobody else was covering, right? Histories of the Armenian foodways in the diaspora. Why spaces like Chuck E. Cheese and Sizzler are important to immigrant communities and what it takes to write about the immigrant experience in an authentic way. As a freelancer, she's free to do it however she wants and in the best possible way for her and her values. And I loved talking to her about just what it takes to write about the immigrant experience the right way. Thank you so, so, so much for joining us today. We're so excited to talk to you. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So I think our first sort of topic that we wanted to get into with you is just about immigration and just how we become brought into a new place through food. Yeah, so I was born in Tehran, Iran, to parents of Armenian descent. Um, We were living in Tehran when the revolution began um, in the country and stayed Uh, throughout the revolution and towards the end of the 80s when the Iran-Iraq war was taking place. Um, I was about three at the time. Uh, My family and I left the country and ended up in Los Angeles as refugees, just like uh, many other Iranian and Armenian families at the time. And so I grew up in Los Angeles. This is always interesting to me um, as also a, a child of refugees, but what were your impressions of the United States before you got here? That's a good question. I, I think I was too young to to remember what my impressions were. Um, but there is a funny story that my mom, when we went to the interview where they interview you about your status and accept you as refugees, uh, she dressed me up like a like a little American sailor. <laughs> I don't know why. Well, I know why. And then for some reason, I went and stood underneath the American flag that was in the embassy or whatever it was. And my mom always says that that's the reason why that they stamped, you know, approved on the um, form because you put on a little show like that. I have absolutely no recollection of anything, but um, it's always brought up as a story. So a lot of the memories that I have that were uh, before I got to the U.S., they were always transmitted by my parents because I was too young to kind of remember. So I kind of absorbed the impression of America, even though even while we were here through their eyes and perspectives. Yeah. You know, there's something about and I don't know if this is like PC to say, but I think I could say it. Uh, refugee parents are really corny sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Um, totally. Like my grandparents <laughs> wanted to name their first American born child Freedom. Oh, wow. Wow, yeah. Yeah, you know, like there's something there's something there like the just the embrace of the 
the icons and the phrasing and all of that stuff. It's just so, I don't know, it's pure, but also a little bit cynical because like you're saying, um, it helps. And that's that's also like a significant experience just to follow up on that, that the parents have to think so much about what the attire might be or Liana for you, like where you might stand. Like that's, you know, that's an interesting element of pressure that people don't really think about when they think about the immigrant story. Yeah, that they have to kind of think about all those technicalities or what this could mean and if this could affect their chances or, you know, and it's it's crazy to think about that they had to factor all of that in, in addition to um, escaping a country. Right, so, right. For sure. And so you wrote a really great piece about a place that resonates with me, Chuck E. Cheese. This was an establishment that had a huge part of my childhood. You know, like it was where we would... I don't know, have like cheap birthdays and stuff like that. It was pretty, um, I don't know. It, it, it just has, it, it holds a special place for me. But I'm curious about like, what role does, does a place like Chuck E. Cheese play in immigrant communities? Like, is it a type of touchstone? What does it represent? I think that when I started thinking about it on a deeper level, it started to represent like a portal to America that is just contained in one crazy building. Um, Everything from the people who are actually there to the food that you're eating, to the kind of music you're listening to or the games you're playing was just extremely American to me and things that I didn't experience either in my own home or even in the social circles that my parents had. And so it was it was overwhelming, honestly, at first, because there's just obviously so much going on. But I think that uh, beyond that, it really holds a special place for a lot of immigrant families and not just immigrant families, other families as well. Obviously, it's just a place where you can go and have a great time. And well, the parents don't have a great, great time. (laughs) Uh, Kids have a great time and it's cheap. You know, you go there and. you get a big, huge pizza, which there are differing opinions about its uh, taste, <laughs> but uh, you you have a good time. And I think for a lot of um, working class people in the U.S. and immigrants who ov- obviously most of them start out in that socioeconomic bracket, it was just a really good place to go and, and, and have their kids have a good time and um, enjoy it. Uh, there weren't many opportunities, you know, spaces are hard to come by. And so that was a very um, good space when you're living in places that you don't have access to parks or pools, public pools or public places in which you can play. Uh, Chuck E. Cheese provided a place that you could do that and you could do it with a lot of people too. So you could take, you know, relatives and friends and you could show up there with 20 people and you'd be accommodated. So I think, um, I think it had a, a economic purpose, but it turned out that when I thought about it as an adult, it had a very, very symbolic purpose for me because obviously it left an impression enough on me that I remembered it throughout my adulthood and continue to visit it when we could visit places like that. Yeah. It's almost like citizenship classes in the form of a restaurant. Mm. Absolutely. Cause in there, you're even picking up on social cues of how you're supposed to act as an American in a way, you know, how the kids are talking to each other, how they're interacting with each other, 
it was like a full on experience in every sense. Yeah. It's so interesting that restaurants like that can provide that kind of experience. I hadn't really thought about this really, Leon, until reading your piece, but looking back, I remember it was one of those places like where the dining room was incredibly diverse. And like, I grew up down South. There weren't many places or social opportunities to like be around people of different backgrounds, right? Like to even topically like understand another ethnicity. And those kind of like Chuck E. Cheese places, those like buffet kind of chain restaurants. Like looking back, I just realized like how diverse the dining rooms were because a lot of people were in the same like socioeconomic kind of standing. But I don't know. There there aren't many places like that. No, I'd, I'd agree with that. And I think um, like, for example, Sizzler holds a special place in my heart because of that, too. I know that there's a lot of people who can relate to that because I've seen people write essays about that. And um the Ikea dining room, for example, I I adore because it's just kind of the same kind of setup in a way more for adults, but just a, a, a decent meal for not a lot of, you know, money and a kind of a kind of an experience. So, yeah, I think there's there's places that are similar to Chuck E. Cheese, not not as chaotic, obviously, but yeah, it's a good point. OK, so you mentioned in the essay, too, that you you've gone to Chuck E. Cheese as an unaccompanied adults, which is what they call adults who also like go to playgrounds without <laughs> children. <laughs> or like, it reminds me of going to the dog park like I like to do and I don't have a dog because right. I just want to like be there. Exactly. Um, <laughs> how is the pizza? Because I haven't had it since I was in elementary school. I'm sure people would disagree with me, but I really liked it. <laughs> and I don't know if that's because if it's gotten better, which I think that they kind of reformulated and got it better because there happen to be different flavors. When I, as a kid, I remember it just being pepperoni or cheese and it, there was like barbecue chicken and different kind of styles. And so um, it, it, it's very good. I enjoyed it, but I'm sure that there are people who would, who would say, oh my God, um, do you have taste buds? <laughs> it's hard to say, but it, it is one of those places, like you were saying, it's a it's like going to a dog park without having a dog. Like I didn't even think I could get in without having a kid. <laughs> so when I walked up, I'm like, do I have to have, do you have to show that you are accompanying a child here? Can, can you just go in? And, but it was obviously not a problem. They just like stamp your hand and you're in. And um, <laughs> there's a, yeah, it's, it's a little weird, but it got weird when I, when I went there for my birthday and I was like, can I, can we order a cake? And she's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm celebrating my birthday here. She's like, uh, okay. It was just very weird. I'm sure for them. Oh my gosh. Did they offer to have Chucky come by the table too? No, he was busy ah. with actual children. <laughs> but kids are still into him, which is exciting. He has a really cool backstory. So, um, and the games are all updated there. You don't have to put coins in anymore. It's like a little credit card thing, but um, I don't know with the way that obviously our world has gone, what, what's going to happen to that and right. you know, right. how are people going to interact in the future? But it, it is a special place. So I didn't go to Chuck E. Cheese much, Justin, but yeah. for me, the immigrant interpolation into American cuisine spot was Hometown Buffet. 
Have you ever mm, been, Justin? Nah, I don't think I have been to Hometown Buffet. Okay, so in the rural-ish community where my extended family is mostly living, we would go to Hometown Buffet for special occasions. And it was this... Well, first of all, you walk in and you're, you're supposed to lie about how old you are when you're a kid, right? So, right, like, my mom right. would whisper in my ear, like, you're seven. I'm like, okay, great. I'm seven. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> I was like, 11. Uh, <laughs> but it was this place where it was all American food. There was no presumption of – there was I, don't, I mean, maybe they have, like, egg rolls now. But, you know, it was very much hams and turkey and just rows and rows of jellos. And it was such a treat because this is American food, and I didn't know what the, what American food was for the most part. Like, then my understanding of it earlier was like ham and dinner rolls and Jello right. Right. and like weird pastas. So <laughs> I love that, and I think that speaks to how food is such a powerful way of nation building and and of reminding people over and over again just like where you are where you stand what the place around you is supposed to be and how it's supposed to be and it's the yeah it's the space in which you consume these things right like i i i completely get that about hometown buffet and like i can't speak to you know your your experience is completely unique for me i think like learning about america as a child was learning about white america and, you know, what spaces seemed important to them or were beloved by them. And I remember being a kid and thinking about and seeing commercials for the food at places like Disney World or, you know, Universal Studios, which, you know, who knows? It might have been like a waffle filled with, I don't know, Mickey Mouse shaped chicken tenders or like these heaping servings of ice cream. Like there was a financial access point there that, you know, obviously my family wasn't able to clear but i remember thinking like oh man that's what it is like that to enjoy america is to be one of those white kids you know running around there being able to eat those things you know what i mean yeah i think they should have questions about you know what flavor churros they have at disneyland on citizenship tests because i think a lot more people would ace them (laughs) i mean that would be uh that would be interesting that's for damn sure it's a lot more honest than asking about benjamin franklin i think You're listening to the Extra Spicy Podcast. We'll be right back after the break. You can support this podcast and the newsroom that creates it by subscribing to the San Francisco Chronicle at sfchronicle.com slash pod. I'm Soleho, and we're back with writer and journalist Liana Agajanian. You've had such a really great career. I see your work like everywhere, Mm -hmm. and I'm always so impressed with the breadth of your writing, the depth of it, just and also all the publications that you managed to get into. (laughs) I'm envious professionally. I think you're among my top favorite food writers for sure. So I'd love to just dig into your your subject matter and just like how you you really get into the topics that you do. Sure. Well, that means a lot to me coming from you since you're one of my favorites as well. And I followed your work (laughs) for a long time. (laughs) So that is very nice of you to say. But I think one of the benefits of being freelance is that I've been able to choose topics that I really, really like writing about rather than uh, I know, you know, it's a little different in a newsroom, you get assigned a lot of stuff. So um, yeah, I, I think I 
I draw obviously a lot on my background and things that I think that maybe I'm only have a history with, or I only like, I tend to, sometimes I put it out like as a feeler on social media, like, and see, did this, was this a thing in your family too? And I often find that it was, and because people respond to it, it becomes a talking point for me. Like for example, the piece I wrote on Frere Rocher. Oh my God. Iconic. (laughs) That was, I just thought it was something that my family did. And then, you know, I started talking about it and people were like, yeah, yeah, mine too, mine too. And then the response after it was just overwhelming because it was just not even contained to the U S anymore. It was Australia and, you know, Europe and everyone was kind of having that conversation. So my background has kind of, or my family life has driven a lot of the pieces that I've done. Uh, yeah, that, 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 that's, I, I would say that that's been the kind of driving force behind the kind of food work that I like to do and the kind of places that I've written for. And of course, Detroit had a lot to do with it too. You know, that was a unique experience for me and being in the Midwest and, and learning more about the U.S. because I, I feel like, you know, coming from an Im- immigrant background, but even, you know, I'm sure there are people who don't come from immigrant backgrounds who feel this way, that the U.S. is such a big place and I just didn't understand a lot of it. <laughs> so uh, that kind of you know, was also another kind of driving force for me, just being able to discover new things and discover the country in a different way. Um, Yeah. There's a complexity to writing about food and using the lens of your family and your own like cultural identity to talk about it. And I think you, you, you posted something one time about uh, cultural guardians and I'm curious, like, what does that phrase mean to you? Cause I know that there are, no matter what background you're from, if you're writing about a food specific to you and who your people are and who your family might be, you might have people cut from that same cloth who (laughs) have an opinion about it or whether that's the right way to talk about it or the wrong way to do something. How complicated is it to write these kinds of things? Um, It happens all the time. And I think any person who writes about food who comes from any background could relate because there are people telling you this is not traditional or that's not authentic or I, my experience with them, it's like a learning process. Obviously you get better at dealing with it once you get older, but I think that it's really important to remember whenever you're doing any of these things, that culture is not a static thing. It's very Mm. fluid. It changes all the time. And so it's not fair to kind of freeze it in one way and say, this is the only way that this can be done, or you're doing this a disservice. Well, no, because it, again, it changes all the time. It differs from family to family. It differs from region to region. And that's also true in the U S you know, you, there's different food in different areas of this country. So it is upsetting to hear people kind of try to become, to take ownership of that, where there aren't any owners, really, because again, it is changing all the time. So I think it's just something that I've learned to deal with. And I, I, I don't mind when people say, oh, well, that's not how my family did it. Or, well, this isn't how you should refer to this dish, because at the end of the day, I'm going to keep writing about it. And I'm sure a lot of my other colleagues who do food work are going to continue writing about it. It doesn't matter. Um, and if those people, you know, have have opinions, they should also write about it too. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, you know, there's room for everybody. There's room for all kinds of inter- interpretations about things. And I, um, 
one dish or, or one way of doing a dish or, or one history of a dish doesn't represent everything. And again, those, because those things are changing all the time, it's very hard to freeze them in history and, and leave them there. Where do you think that impulse comes from to, to you know, dip into or at least to to use a frozen idea of, of what something should be or sort of like nostalgic lens as a as a firm reference point for food? I think it's a very natural reaction. Like it's a combination of like protection and fear. I think there's like a fear that that dish or the way that that's done will disappear, might disappear and um like you said you know people are really being nostalgic about it and uh you know and also i think a lot of the times because those dishes are so closely associated with their family and their mothers the way that their mother did xyz dish is going to resonate and overpower everything else and so if you did it differently then you're kind of saying that their family didn't do it right, which is not true. It's just, again, they can stand side by side together. But I, I think it's natural and I think it's, I understand it. I completely understand it. But I think that people should be a little more flexible when it comes to that. I would imagine that this dynamic gets really complicated too when you're talking specifically about the Armenian culinary legacy. Um, and I know that there are a lot of people out there who can relate to just how intellectual lineages, uh, culinary lineages, memories are often endangered by history and by war and conflict. Um, how do you carry that weight of, of being one of the most well-known uh, writers who cover this stuff in the American media? Yeah, it's, it's heavy because of that um, history that we, we in particular have, and it just makes the whole thing even more dense, I suppose, when you're talking about coming from a background that has forced displacement, has violence, trauma, genocide. So trying to balance that with things that are changing is, is very complicated. And I think my way of doing it is that, again, there are there's room on the table for both. So I think that there's that that history absolutely should be talked about and treasured because there are a lot of people who those were the only memories and tangible things that they brought with them. The, the history of those uh, particular dishes, the way that their mothers made them go back a hundred years um, to places that they physically can't access anymore. And so, yes, it, 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 it carries a different kind of weight, but there's a way that you can balance that with new things that are happening, new generations who are experimenting and combining, you know, especially in Los Angeles, we have a lot of fusion with our cuisine where you'll often find that, you know, there's like Mexican Armenian fusion cuisine that happens sometimes with some innovative young chefs who are, who are trying to do something new. It's just a part of the environment that you're in. And so I think we, we, there is a way to respect both. And I try in the kind of writing that I've done or, you know, the project that I'm doing, trying to cover all of this to present it in a complex way, to not say that, to give them both the equal airtime, I guess, I guess I, is what I'm saying, that, you know, they can both exist together and, and it's okay. We don't have to forsake one for the other. So I'm, I want to sort of pivot to thinking about, um, more broadly about your writing about immigrants and also just writing about immigrants in general, because I think we're always in the, you know, journalism and writing community, always talking about 
better and better ways of covering these communities. Um, so I kind of would invite you to rant here. Um, <laughs> like, what are some tropes that you, you've you seen in this kind of writing that you just don't want to see anymore? So I've often found that, like, when I am working with editors at larger publications, it is easier for a writer to fall into those tropes versus when I am just completely writing on my own and very cognizant of the kind of work I want to do and reach the audience that I, I prefer to reach. So I think the audience has a lot to do with that. I think once you get into um, larger publications with editors who are trying to like appeal to their audience and what would resonate with their broader audience, it's very easy. And I know I'm sure I've done it for writers who are writing about food to fall into those tropes, whether it's, you know, a lunchbox thing or to riff off of that in another way. I was bullied about the food I ate or the food, you know, inside my house was very different than the food outside my house. Yeah, I've, I've, I think I've written that sentence many times. And so it's not so much that they're, they're not true. It's just that we have to get to a place that maybe kind of moves beyond that. I guess mm. in a little way. And the only ways that I've found that have worked for me so far is when I'm writing on my own without <laughs> <laughs> any anyone really dictating the kind of ways that this needs to be expressed or, um, and that's a little scary because you don't know if your audience will respond to it. But I have found that when I have done that, I've gotten the exact response from the exact people that I wanted to. And mm. so that is important for me rather than appealing to masses. I think a lot of writers feel that way um, these days. And that's why I think you're seeing a lot of writers who are doing newsletters, for example, and getting kind of uh, a following for the kind of work that they want to write about. And they're seeing people respond to that. And I think that's really good for the diversity of, you know, journalism in general, but food writing in, in, in particular. So yeah, I've really found that the, the only way that I've been able to kind of not fall into tropes is when I am writing without any kind of supervision, which isn't always a good thing, but <laughs> it allows for your creative process to be way more free of those things. Yeah, no, I mean, it's... <laughs> Not having to explain yourself, right, is so freeing. Yeah. The Racist Sandwich podcast that you were a part of was, it's a great example of that because those were issues and things that maybe couldn't make it to more mainstream media or couldn't be discussed in more mainstream media. And so that was an amazing way to to talk a lot about things that couldn't be discussed or could fall into a trope. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And the the exchange was that we didn't make any money off of it. So. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's always the rub, isn't it? Yeah. And, you know, the the writing that I'm doing myself without pitching is exactly the same. That's the trade-off. You get the creative freedom and the ability to to talk about things in ways you want to, but you, um, it's not a profitable venture for sure. If you had all the time and money in the world, what story would you want to do? I can, I can say there's two. There's two projects that I would want to work on. So the first one is... I would love to be able to continue the work that I'm doing with documenting Armenian culinary heritage in a diaspora setting in a way that is profitable or at least sustainable. Uh, that is, it's really important to me because I'm 
it's one of the only stories that I found that I am still excited about in a lot of ways. You know, when you're a writer, you you do a story and you um, it ends and you can move on to the next project. But this one just doesn't leave me. And so I have to see it through, whether that means continuing to do it on my own or, you know, if I get lucky, um, getting it to be in a sustainable place or uh, turning a lot of those stories into a book. Uh, the other story that I would love to do is about Michigan and tart cherries in Michigan. I've been wanting to write a story about tart cherries in Michigan ever since I got to Detroit. Um, 80% of the country's tart cherries come from that state. And uh, there's a lot of interesting issues there with foreign imports of cherries and how they undercut farmers in, in the state and how that tart, tart cherries are like very difficult to transport fresh. So that's why they're always canned. Uh, I just think that I'm, I've been kind of obsessed with that story for a little bit, but I haven't been able to place it yet or find a publication that would want to take it. But I, I'd love to go spend a couple of weeks with farmers and tart cherry fields in Michigan. So those are my two very different, uh, <laughs> very, awesome. very different ideas. Yeah. Well, I know there are quite a few food editors who listen to this podcast. So hopefully they hear your pitches, especially the tart cherry one, because I want to read that story. Yeah, that would be cool. That'd be very cool. <laughs> so as a final note, um, before you go, where can our listeners find you and support your work? Uh, so I'm on all social media platforms. My name, Liana, L-I-A-N-A-A-G-H. And my website is just my full name, lianaagajanian.com. And the work that I do about Armenian food is on a website called diningindiaspora.com. And all the stories can be found there. And that was Liana Agajanian. Before we go, I just want to talk about this Lunchbox article, which I'm guessing some of our listeners haven't read. And I think it deserves a little bit of an explanation. So Eater writer Jaya Saxena wrote this article about the Lunchbox story, which is this apocryphal thing that a lot of people talk about, especially in Asian America, about being made fun of for their smelly lunch, right? And there are a lot of nuances to this because it's not universal, although it is seen as universal as everyone's sort of racial awakening. You know, there are a lot of nuances here. Not everyone actually had packed lunch. A lot of people just got whatever was given to them with free lunch, which is right, right, you know, right, right. one of the things that I experienced. Same, um, same, same. <laughs> and, you know, a lot of people grow up in contexts that are like very homogenous in their favor, um, where they grow up in ethnic enclaves and they don't have to worry about having to explain themselves, right? There are so mm -hmm. many mm, degrees of nuance to the, I guess, immigrant experience that pretending that we all are united under this smelly lunchbox story is kind of erasure, right? It erases a lot yeah. of really different textures. There's also something I want to get your thoughts on too, Soleil, when it comes to this, like this lunchbox idea because we've talked about how immigrant parents might, you know, especially when it comes to the citizen test or just their initial foray into the States, 
they want their kids to be, they try to make their kids appear as American as possible. And then the other side is interesting, is just this idea that the lunchbox was very indicative of the culture and cuisine that you had at home. So it wasn't so much, you know, where immigrant families, I guess, were packing their kids, those pudding packs or something like that, or Lunchables or something. They were giving them stuff that was from home that they might have eaten for dinner that wasn't, you know, what was being served at school. So there's kind of like a duality to it, I guess. This one side of like people thinking that immigrant families want to be very American. And the other side is what you're eating at school is what you ate at home. And it might not be American kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, it speaks to how there's so many different ways of existing. Right. 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 <laughs> Which I don't know. It feels like a cop out to say that. But I also think it's true that we want to see patterns where sometimes there aren't. And sometimes there is a lot more nuance that takes time to explain. And your impulse as a writer or as someone who tells stories is just to flatten it because you want to get to the good stuff, the important stuff. But that flattening does a lot of damage if you do it too much. And I mean, like, I've done it. <laughs> and that's the thing, right? And that's the thing that Jaya writes about, too. Like, she's done it. And I... <laughs> It's hard to have the willingness to take yourself to account. Um, it's embarrassing and it's, you know, you want to be trusted as a source and as a storyteller. And so it can be hard to like do that self-audit. But I think she was brave to do it and it's inspiring. Thanks again to Liana Agadanian for being in conversation with us and to Erica Carlos for producing this episode. If you're enjoying Extra Spicy, please share it with a friend and give it a rating on Apple Podcasts. And remember to send us any questions or voice memos you may have about food, life, or anything else for our Dear Spicy advice segment at extraspicy at sfchronicle.com. Thanks for listening. 